Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 45, MLC Panel. of sport podcast i'm your host adam martin at t adam martin on twitter i'm battling a little bit of a voice issue as i some of you that maybe happen to follow me personally on twitter or the show on twitter will know that i just got back from attending major level creatives connect 2015 conference which is a creative conference for designers working in pro sports if you aren't familiar with the conference be sure to check out episode 42 with chris david garcia he is the creative director of the houston astros and also the founder of the conference and in that episode he gives us some insight into why he founded it and what it was about so this past weekend wrapped up the second annual conference and uh, there were a few Makers of Sport podcast guests that were there. Uh, And then in 2016, there will be a few more Makers of Sport podcast guests that are there. Anyhow, I had the great opportunity to moderate a panel with the conference's keynote speakers, a few of which, as I mentioned, you you as podcast listeners uh, will know, having been past guests on the show. The panel included uh, one of baseball's finest branding minds, Todd Radom of Todd Radom Design, who was on episode four of the show, if you happen to not know who he is or you are new to this particular niche of design, uh, he's often mentioned as inspiration from other guests, including myself, as well as the previous episode's guests, Brad Bishop and Michael Thurman of Torch Creative, who were also on the panel and keynote speakers at the conference. The last guy you will hear from is a gentleman by the name of Ricardo Crespo. He uh, he's the one that you hear dropping amazing knowledge bombs. I mean, and and he's also he's a bit of a ninja online. You can't find out much about him, but he is extremely smart and a very successful leader in the world of design thinking. And he he works very closely behind the scenes with companies like Apple and Nike. Uh, and that's the way that he prefers it. He prefers to be low key. He prefers to be the ninja and, and not to be about the ego. He's also worked on major entertainment releases such as the movie Avatar, having been senior vice president and global chief creative officer of 20th Century Fox. Historically, he was a global creative director at the toy company Mattel Incorporated and has also held leadership jobs at world-renowned advertising agencies such as McCann Erickson of Mad Men fame and Saatchi and Saatchi and and Shiat Day. This was a great conversation and you will get some good insight from it from all of us. A couple of quick disclaimers, though, before I, I press play on this thing. This is raw and uncut, so is there, there's a bit of profanity in this if you happen to be listening in front of your kids or maybe out loud in your office. Also, I didn't really have access to the corporate Astros sound studio so in order to wire in my field recorder, so I ended up having to just set my digital recorder with Mike on the floor in front of the panelists, but you should be able to hear everything well. It just won't be the audio quality of the typical interview. So without further ado, here is the panel from MLC Connect 2015. Sweet. So, um, oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Better. So I'll, I'll quickly introduce 
myself if I met you. I'm, uh, I'm Adam Martin, and uh, I am an independent designer by day, and sort of my passion project um, is a podcast called Makers of Sport, where it, I discuss, um, interview people uh, about the intersection of sports and creativity. So that's, a lot of that times it has a heavy design focus because I myself am a designer. However, it's not necessarily a design show. So. Um, as he mentioned, we're going to do a panel today, and I got some questions for these guys here, and then you guys feel free to interact. Um, and if you want people to elaborate on anything, some things we may retread from like maybe Ricardo's presentation or something, because we're kind of presenting this in a, in a different context. So uh, I'll start off and say, kind of hit you with, a, with maybe a, a hardball here, but um, in a world that's sort of full of uh, and our world is full of stakeholders, be that marketing people, owners, and for me specifically, I do a lot of work in college sports, there's a lot of alumni involvement and that type of thing. Uh, making major decisions on creative strategy, branding, and the messaging of the program. So I'm curious for you guys, how do you personally navigate this world of decisions by committee, and how do you really push your ideas through and sell your idea um, to those committees? That's you, All right, All right, I'm up first. First of all, first thing I'm going to say is you have to forgive my voice a little bit. I was in Cincinnati for All Star. I think I've told several of you this for four days. So I've been just talking and meeting people. And anyway, so uh, forgive me on that. But Adam, to your point, um, you know this is part of it. Uh, I think I had said it earlier to Aaron actually. You know, when you when you think about the very beginning of dealing in sports and the visibility of this stuff, and the fact that so many people are involved, so many platforms are involved, it's big, it's visible. And uh, anyway, what I had said earlier was, you know, the success or lack of success of of any identity, the core part of the identity, you're only as good as the the crappiest licensee, and what they're going to do with your work, right? So I think about that personally. Um, you know, it's just, it goes with the territory. It really does. And uh, it's a sausage making process. <laughs> Not always pretty, but that's a fact. And you know, if, if you uh, are looking for a, a streamlined process, it's just not gonna happen with sports, right? Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I mean, I just think that, you know, rationale was also a big part of it. You know, if, if you're talking to a, a board or committee or whatever that might be, uh, you know, being able to explain how you got to where you got, and hopefully you've executed in a way that that, that resonates. I'm sorry to use all your terms from here. <laughs> you know, uh, as long Royalty as payments. <laughs> as long as it resonates with the, with the key stakeholders, I think that that's always a really important and clearly uh, helps to to uh, drive you know the project. So typically, I think if you if you're able, like I said, to provide that rationale, it generally works. Well, probably one last thing. You go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so uh, great question, Brent. I mean, uh, the way that I interpret that question, which is great, is that, like, look, it exists. There's there's no there's no getting around it. Designed by committee does exist, right? Sometimes it just becomes the default. Uh, I'll share with you the perspective of how our two agencies work, is that we acknowledge it, but we don't accept it. We acknowledge it, but we work with it. And what I mean by that, to expand about designed by committee, at the end of the day is representative of the fact that it's a group of people deciding by consensus. And if you peel the onion back a little bit more, it's really about risk management. Somebody's saying to the other one, if you like it, I'll like it, and if it goes to shit, then we're okay, right? You're, you got my back. So how we approach that is 
we understand the position of how they're looking at it, and we give them as much information to make an objective decision so that it's not a subjective decision to go, I hope it's gonna work. The objectivity is set up by a very strategic way that the creative has purpose, what I mentioned earlier in the keynote. When the creative is presented in such a way that it serves a purpose, and that purpose has very measurable ways that they can track how it's done, what we're doing is we're telling them, we're experts at what we do. You're experts at what you do. It's not a risk for you, and we're enabling you to make the right decisions. So we use strategy as a way to mitigate designed by committee. Does that make sense? I cannot follow that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would add one, one more point. Oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we wrap them up on that one. One quick point, because you just hit upon it. Uh, I always think about, you know, we talk about building in assurances for all of these stakeholders, right? And so digging this very deep foundation that yeah. you can build a very solid structure upon building all of those assurances and making them feel comfortable, the fact that this building will endure and that you can do what you want to do with it, it's a huge, huge deal, so, yeah. yeah. The key there, I can just sort of read, is that you, the, the, the one sound I'll leave with you on behalf is like, take the subjectivity out of their decision. Because when you default to subjectivity, you're also conceding your expertise, and if, if the other people in your group that are making the decision or part of the decision are technically higher up in the food chain, then what they'll do is they'll exercise that seniority, that tenure, because you've conceded your voice. So taking the subjectivity out of it by making it objective strategically allows them to go, I can't argue with that logic. Or if I'm going to argue with that logic, I need to convince you of my logic. Because then it's not about titles. It's about expertise and how the expertise is you guys as creatives finding the right, clever way to come together seamlessly versus trying to appease or accommodate one another. I will say one tiny, one tiny little thing. Yeah, and this is this is very tiny. Uh, and, and talk about peeling the onion back and getting down to one little finite detail. Before Mike and I ever start uh, any kind of rebrand or project, we have the client identify who are the stakeholders, who are we answering to, because we strongly encourage them to keep that group as small as possible. Um, we don't want to, we don't want to, what was it like, we came up with making a pizza for, you know, 100 people. You don't go around ordering and say, okay, what do you want, what do you want, what do you want? You say, okay, here it is. Take it, you know, take your slice. This is what I'm providing you. So we just try to keep the stakeholder group as small as possible. It's good stuff, guys. So the, the world today, especially with this social internet, uh, it's very saturated with designers and creative people. Everybody's doing creative things and it's in across disciplines, not just design. So to sort of stand out, other than your portfolio, everybody, every designer has a portfolio, right? And Ricardo, I know you touched on some of the selling aspects of your portfolio instead of just showing it. But what things can designers do other than the portfolio itself to stand out? be that writing or, or anything like that. Go for it. I mean, I've, I've always been a huge proponent that, uh, I mean, first of all, technology flattens out skill. There might be somebody who is uh, an awesome, you know, Photoshop wizard and makes his stuff looks, look great, but, you know, it may hide, it may hide a multitude of scenes, perhaps. So, as I was about to say, I, you know, I always say it, it's kind of trite, but it's true. In niches, there are riches become an expert 
become that Swiss Army knife, you know, like the kind of thing that you showed before. Um, so whereas your design is a great tool, like me, for instance, maybe not for everybody, but I write, I blog. Um, you know, I've, I've sort of, I have this very sort of authoritative, singular voice. I research. Um, I share all that stuff on social media, and it makes me more than just a guy who designs. I think it's, it's, it is important to do all this other stuff, whatever that might be. Um, great question. Again, not killer questions. Uh, forgive the repetition, but so portfolio to me, in, in my experience, is, again, I mentioned it earlier, it, it's the notion that it's a promise of your potential, right? Because it's actualized, it's there, it's in the pages. For creatives and designers to expand their presence, their awareness, their equity, uh, one of the things that I do personally and that I encourage uh, my team is to understand the business of the different aspects we're in, whether we're representing a consumer electronics company, a footwear company. When you understand the business, it's a clear difference of not being able to say, look, I know everything about your business. And, and that's the opposite of, of that image that I showed you about the jack of all trades tool, the multi-tool. You can't say you're a multi-tool and you can be effective in all of them. What you're effectively saying is I understand the purpose of that multi-tool and when the right tool is used for the right situation. What you have to demonstrate as a creative is communicate on the spot your clear understanding of why their business will benefit with your help without ever showing your portfolio. Because technically, once you display your portfolio and with pride because of how well you've done it, it reinforces, it's an affirmation of your ability to think. And that's when I say you gotta, you know, design starts up here, and sometimes that design isn't executional, it's brand design, it's business design, it's marketing design, it's understanding how design as, an, as a discipline and as a profession is a way that they are gonna to look to you as an added value more than just a service at the end. Executional. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so obviously we just <laughs> Isn't this what we're supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> So, so we kind of talked about this broader spectrum of, of the portfolios and how things are, are more important than the portfolios. There are things that are import, more important than the portfolios, but now let's kind of do a deep dive on the portfolios themselves because they do kind of hold, they do hold significance and as you said, are there the, a promise of your potential. Yeah. Um, so, and again, kind of touching on this whole social world, we see these websites like Dribble and, uh, and Behance and places like that where designers are constantly putting their work. So what, what are you guys' thoughts on, on where those play in the world of our portfolios today? Is it, is it more important to have a presence there nowadays than to have one at your own domain? Say, you know, at a Martin Design, or whatever. That's, man, that's a great question. Because I've never really thought about that or talked about that. Dribble seems to be the... Uh, awesome community for all of us to share our ideas and our experiences and, and you know, share our portfolios with the world because before, prior to the digital age, it was really tough to do that. Um, one thing that I notice, and this is strictly personal for me, when I'm scrolling through or looking at what other people do, there seem to be people that copy other people's style or want to copy other people's work. And that's probably great when you're just trying to learn skill and build your skill, but I always think, okay, 
what can I do different than that? How can I make my portfolio stand out? What, you know, what, I don't ever want to look like somebody else. Um, and that's really what we kind of strive to do in, one, in the area of, of driven social media. I mean, this applies mainly to younger artists, but it's it's generally, I mean, it's almost the equivalent of having training wheels on a bike. I mean, you know, yes, you might look if you're if you're going into a dis certain discipline, you might and you might not have the skill set yet. You know, you might look to others and you might emulate them for a while and slowly build up your skill. You know, and get that confidence that you need. Uh, you know, I know in the past I would present ideas and it wasn't quite sure of myself at the time and like is this good enough should I show this or you know but I think as, as time goes and you keep working through that um, I think your your portfolio will, will get stronger and eventually you find your own voice uh, and then it'll become your style and then I think places like Dribble, uh, you know I think it's a, it's a one-stop shop so you know it's probably easier for a younger artists to go to, to you know to, to, to post to Dribble because that's kind of where everybody is you know as opposed to you know Come see me.com, you know, it's just, wait, don't, don't look at that. Right. You know what I'm saying. that domain. Now, yeah, first of all, I, I am old enough to have actually carried a portfolio in the print box like you talked about earlier, right? Back in the day, right? And and so now, I mean, you, you call it, you've got all these different platforms. I think, again, uh, establishing your own name and doing it under the, you know, under, under this, this uh, platform of, of you, is job number one. But if you got these other things, especially as a younger person, you know, that you talked about, um, why not do it? Um, get your name out there, be noticed, uh, you know, it's it's there, and people are out there looking to hire from these places. So, you know, use all the tools in the toolbox. Absolutely. Uh, I agree, I mean, the, at the end of the day, these things are platforms, right? So they're, 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 they're locations, they're repositories for people's books online. I, I want to be able to address what you specifically asked, Brad. Was that I, to me, it's six and a half dozen. Whether you, whether you have a crowdsourced or crowd platform where there's multiple um, users like Behance uh, or Dribble, but uh, or you have your own unique URL. Right? The, the way that I'll share it with you guys is because they're locations, they're still destinations. Somebody still has to be actioned to find that destination. So to separate from that, I think, which is what your question, what are those things to consider and how to separate from the pack? How do you take a situation like this where you're all at the same level of who's sitting the tallest to get noticed? It's, there, there's many techniques, one of which is, okay, enter competitions to get that awareness, get that recognition. The one thing that I will encourage you guys to do that, that I do to this day, and I do it anonymously, but obviously I'm revealing to you guys here in the privacy of this room, is I specifically, and we and our team, we pay it forward. So we will actually take other designers and highlight them. We celebrate those other designers that we admire. And it seems counterintuitive because you could think, well, they're my competition, why do I want them? You're actually, what you're doing is you're building up the industry, the credibility of the industry. And then again, the human psychology kicks in. When I'm nice to Brett, he will reciprocate because he didn't ask me to be nice to him. He's put in a position not uncomfortable to go, wow, that's kind of stand up, like you're paying it forward, which is good. And the effect of that is there's no better way to stand out, there's no better way to separate and differentiate, sorry, not separate, differentiate from your peers. Not good, bad, or better, just to get awareness for your unique location, wherever that is, is by paying it forward because you are being endorsed by someone else. We as human beings follow endorsements. 
you will go consider a vacation location because your neighbor said it or your, your friend's been there and you've done that. Never underestimate the, the influence and the impact of an endorsement. And sometimes you've got to extend the olive branch to create that endorsement. And I don't mean the, the, the materialistic, I reached out to you on LinkedIn and I endorsed you for a skill. That's bullshit. That's, <laughs> no, no, that's very transparent. That means I did something for you, you got to do something for me. Sometimes you do that. And what I'll do, for example, anonymously, is my wife and I will, will donate money, an X amount of money, and we will put an up-and-coming student through Miami Ad School, and we will never tell them who it is. And then through the word, through the grapevine, oh, 13 is coming up on graduation, this group 13 is coming up, and that's 13 put the student through the, through the course. And what we're doing is we're saying we're giving back to the industry by supporting the next generation of creatives that are coming in here because we feel that those are the people that are gonna influence how we continue to think because we have to learn from them. There's things about the next generation that I can't even begin to think about because they're just that much more advanced than we are. Every day, they're exponentially more advanced than we are, but shame on us, shame on me if I'm too myopic to think oh, I know more than they do. No, I welcome their knowledge. So pay it forward, reach out, create that olive branch, and. 99% of that time, that altruistic endorsement will return, and that's how you get awareness to action you to your site, whether that's a crowdsourced site or your own URL. I'm going to stand next to you. <laughs> 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 you can sit here by yourself. <laughs> so, Isn't this why we're gathering now? <laughs> so, so you mentioned paying it forward, and I think one of those ways to do that is to interact with communities and, and build uh, you know, friendships and that type of thing. And, and some of the places online that this particular industry interacts are places like uniwatch.com or sportslogos.net. So I'm curious for you guys specifically, how important are these interacting with these types of online communities? And have you seen, uh, has it had any positive or negative effect on your, on your work and careers today as opposed to when they didn't exist years ago, being able to interact online like that? Uh, I'm, I'm only speaking for myself, not even George. Uh, you know, we'll go to those social sites, but or I, I will go visit them. But as far as interacting, uh, I personally don't get involved because I think it's it, it just opens up a can of worms that perhaps I don't want to get involved in. You know, you, you inevitably we're going to face, especially with the team brands. You know, when we do collegiate brands, uh, people hate change, so there's there's always going to be backlash. And to try to engage that in any way is just career suicide. So we, we try to avoid that. So you know, uh, we just kind of let it. You know, you can almost you can almost chart it. You know, anytime a new a new brand comes out, especially at, again at team level, it spikes. You know, within the first day or two days, the, the you know the hatred is, is off the charts. But it generally will dissipate right after that. So. Um, you know, you want to get involved, you want to try to defend it, but you know, you'll, you'll defend it to the end of the day. So I, I, I just don't mess with it. Just to touch on what Mike said, like this kind of stuff, I absolutely love. I love talking to creators from other teams. I love talking to creators from other companies. Just sharing ideas and just talking to other people that do this inspires me and makes me want to go back and, and try to make myself better. The, we keep a clear separation from uh, you know, engaging anyone that in here that ever emails me and asks me a question. You better believe I'm going to write it back because I want to, you know, interact with you. Joe Blow Public that sends me an email and says, 
you, you, how dare you change my logo for my school? That, you know, we're going to send it back. And how, why didn't they hire a student? I, we have to stay professional and separate ourselves from that. Because it's, it's really not worth engaging someone like that because uh, there's no benefit in it. And you're just going to cause, you know, I mean, everything's a digital book now. And you don't want anything out there that could come back to haunt you. So it's just kind of, hey, sorry you feel that way. You're entitled to your opinion. We respect that. I have a feeling next year you're going to be buying a t-shirt. And we know that for a fact. <laughs> so you know, thank you for your opinion. And we appreciate it. We're going to keep doing what we're doing and keep engaging you know, guys like you and girls like you. Unless, of course, you like what we did and then you can talk about it. Well, I mean, that's a great question because uh, I think everybody in this room would probably concur the the level of public discourse in 2015 is sort of uh, you know this race to the bottom it's like a food fight and there is this tyranny of the masses without question who don't know what, what went into a particular job didn't see a creative brief don't know about the the uh, stakeholders that we were all discussing earlier and you know nothing ever happens in a vacuum personally uh, I kind of split this up two ways if somebody sends me an email and they are polite, I, I engage people all the time. And you know, I've met some great people, uh, you know, online via Twitter. I'll go back and forth. Usually, I don't involve, uh, you know, my own work. I mean, so much of what I do, I am not allowed to share publicly. That it sort of shields me to some degree from uh, from that sort of thing. And and I think of my old mother, who's a tough old woman. Who and she really did say this to me when I was a kid, and I think of her all the time with this stuff. And she said, "Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one, <laughs> and you know it's kind of it's kind of true." So uh, I would never, you know, I will look on Chris's boards, but I would never engage, um, you know. And and I uh, tweet and email quite frequently, and you know I've met some great people that way too. So cuts both ways. So the way I do it, the way I look at it is I never reciprocate. I engage when necessary, but I'm deeply aware of the community. Um, case in point, this room is a culture around sports identity. There's a design community, but there's a culture within that design community, which is this, just like there's a design culture around typography. You know, we, you could have a conference that is just around typography, hand lettering. You can even get down to the new ones. So, I personally get a thrill out of being deeply aware across all of the spectrum because it's a way that I can show respect to my industry by, by, by understanding who could we bring into this project that could make it better versus, oh, we should be doing what they're doing. No, we should bring the person who's really good at it into it. So we engage when needed, but I never reciprocate because usually reciprocation is implied that someone's bad-mouthing or somebody's giving a subjective, criti you know, critical opinion, and they're entitled to it. But as soon as you reciprocate, you've just opened a can of worms to go, oh, okay, now it's your turn. And there's just not enough time in the day for that, that bullshit, in my opinion. So this one's pretty sports industry specific, and, and I'd just like to get your guys' opinion on where, you know as designers, especially we kind of talk about sometimes the quote highbrow design community, the big major branding design firms kind of look down on what sports designers do as like, we all know we're not curing the answer with, you know, the work that we're putting out there, right? Um, so from your guys' opinions, where does the sports design community stand above maybe the general design community, and then what areas can it work on? Chad, can it work on? 
you know, I, I again, I would say that I've, I've been in the sports design community for a quarter century. It's a long time, and you see trends come and go, and you see economies ebb and flow. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, our niche was uh, right now. I think we're in a pretty good place because I think about this for several reasons. I remember I was asked to give a talk at the 2005 AIGA National uh, Conference in Boston. And, um, you know, it's a big room with people who are from, you know, some serious agencies and stuff like that. And at that time, sports design was really looked down upon. It was sort of like the fast food uh, to the intelligentsia snobbery. Uh, I also come at it from a point where, uh, you know, uh, when I first went off on my own 25 years ago, I rented office space from Paul Scher before she went to Pentagram. So earlier I talked about the sausage being made. Well, I saw how that sausage was made. And, uh, you know, to some degree there was a huge lack of respect. Well, what happened was, um, you know, a, a thing called the Great Recession uh, started uh, in 2007 or so, and you saw big top branding agencies want to get into sports. It's visible and people are passionate about it. I mean, you know, look at all of us in this room. And I think it's sort of, uh, gained this veneer of, of respectability because these people wanted this work. Uh, Michael Beirut went pentagram and you know did some stuff with the Jets and you know this is big. So I don't know where I'm going with this, but anyway, ebbs flows. What can we learn from them? I don't know. Let's let's build more. I mean, you know, I, I think that's let's all get down with that part of it. Uh, you know, I mean, we're all designers and creatives first, regardless of what our niche is. And some people, you know, go back and forth between uh, you know different different uh, pieces of that essentially. So uh, I like the let's build more. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> So the way I look at that, and it's again another great question, when you have the very viable, and they're, they're great, the entities like the landowners, the, you know, the pentagrams, the, the I, don't even, I don't even want to acknowledge them as highbrow because that's being too reverential. They're in a space that deals specifically within a very prolific industry, which is commerce identity, Citibank, large brand identities. I've worked with them, I know these people. There's a, a woman named Alina Wheeler that has written a book called Designing Brand Identity. I've had the good fortune to be featured in her book. And through that process, I've met a lot of these people you know, that, that design some of the largest corporate identities that we can shake a stick at. Citibank, CN Railway, you know, the new American Airlines identity. They are in the business of commerce identity. You guys, believe it or not, uh, they're very envious of us because we are in the business of cultural identity. We rally communities. We rally people around a movement. Citibank can't host, like, Well, that's why I always say, like, you know, uh, Paul Rand was the greatest identity designer in history, most yeah. likely, and he designed UPS, but you know what? There are people walking around with Astros tattoos, and I don't know anybody with a FedEx or a UPS. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the, the level of passion really, you know, there's what do you want to do, and, right? And I'll, t I'll tell you firsthand, about 50 to 60% of our portfolio in our Toronto, uh, LA studios, and now we're, we're about to expand into Sydney, about 50 to 60 is uh, active lifestyle sports identity. So active lifestyle being surf, skate, that kind of culture. And I'm telling you firsthand, there is a big, big movement about people trying to recruit within that space to come into those large spaces. 
like the large corporate identities. But the reason they're not effective to do that is because they can't clearly articulate the, the draw. Well, you're going to work on something as big as Citibank. Yeah, but that doesn't inspire me as a designer. I want to do an identity that builds culture, and that's what I think you guys should celebrate. Take, like, hold your chin up high because there are a thousand people that would kill to sit in the seat that you're in right now to know to do what you're doing. Shame on you if you're just thinking, oh, I can do something better. You can do something better, but don't lose that, that fire, is what I'd say. Just when Mike and I were kind of telling the story of, you know, we're going to leave this company, this agencies, where we're working on Philip Morris and Kraft Foods and things that, like Ricardo said, I mean, it didn't inspire me. It beat me down to go to work. And we would tell people, hey, we're quitting this job and we're going to go design sports logos for a living. Every one of the people that we told said, we said that to said, oh, well, see you in six months. You'll be back here looking for a job. <laughs> it was over 10 years ago. And those people are now sending, every now and then would send us their portfolios. Hey, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think about this? And it's funny that the agencies who turn their nose up at sports or, or anything entertainment wise, it's funny that you go look at their portfolio now and they're squeezing that stuff in their portfolio because they want to be part of it too. Because it's, it's passionate and it's fun and it gets us out of bed each day. And listen, I, I'll just add that I wouldn't say that they're turning their nose up at sports. I honestly want to give them the benefit of the doubt that I don't think they appreciate the depth of knowledge and the kind of passion yeah. and throughput, both design and executional, that this room puts into their work. They don't know what they don't know, so they can only be informed and criticized or give an opinion based on their perception of something, right? But I will tell you, after speaking to some of these seven-figure designers, they would kill for a day in your office just to watch how you work, how you think, where, you, where do you sketch? Do you actually use a stylus? What do you mean, you're starting on an iPad? What do you mean, you're starting on a napkin? No shit, we do too. But they don't know what they don't know, so I, I wanna be fair to go, it's not about criticizing, I don't think they're turning their nose up, I think they just don't know what, they don't know what they don't yeah. know, so their perception is, you don't have the reach that we do when we design an identity for Citibank. Well, that's relative, but we have cultural influence, we have cultural impact. We can influence people to come and tailgate. When was the last time Citibank did that? <laughs> Todd, I want to touch on something you said earlier. And I think <laughs> up here are a bunch of entrepreneurs that are cheering hard when you say build more, but you got to remember Ross's presentation. You guys don't want to hear it. We're going to build more. <laughs> well, we, we want you to impart that to <laughs> yes. the next level up. <laughs> so, kind of taking a, a, a little bit of a different path. and. I know, obviously, most people here are going to be on Facebook and things like Twitter, and, and you hear the word, the Silicon Valley, and how big the tech industry is, and startups, and venture capital, and angel investing, and that type of thing. The traditional advertising industry seems to have a bit of a, a talent crunch where a lot of creatives are now going and working at these startups for high salaries, you know, like stock options, and those types of things. Um, and and I'm curious, do you guys, how do sports teams keep their best talent here, like in, for the teams, instead of leaving and going to another industry? Maybe one of these guys gets that Facebook job. That's a, that's a question <laughs> for these guys, in-house. Well, I'll give it a shot to maybe start, because this has happened to us before. So it's, it's a very legitimate question, and 
the lowest common denominator of that scenario is the character. Here's a big paycheck, right? And here's an opportunity to make an impact in your career on something that is about to go big. I say all the power to you, go for it. It really comes down to you as an individual. We're all different this way. My perspective on this is what, what makes me want to get up in the morning. And I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I'm, in, I'm with new friends. The, the transfer, the veil is down. CCO, a major motion picture studio, toy company, I work with. Titles don't mean shit. It's the money doesn't mean shit. If you're not driven, if you're not passionate, if you're not excited, if you're not motivated, I'm motivated by the fact that I don't ever want to do anything shitty. The money never even comes into my mind about deciding is this going to be the last shittiest thing that I did. Because we agree that you're going to be remembered by the last shittiest thing that you did. Not the best thing, the last shittiest thing. So what drives you? And what drives you is to put yourself in an environment that you think will push you to the next level. If that's a social media startup or that's a, an entrepreneurial startup, all the power to you. Just don't blame them when it doesn't work out. Because at the end of the day, everything is a choice. Make an informed decision. My informed decision is I know what drives me. I know what inspires me. I know what my catalyst is. And my catalyst is not a carrot, which is a paycheck every two weeks. My carrot is, will I enjoy somebody recognizing something that I authored, that I generated, without me ever telling them that I did that? And there's no greater feeling than seeing some of you wear a logo that we had done for Hurley or Nike, or you walk a toy at uh, Walmart and you're buying a package and you're walking out the store with it. <laughs> and I don't have to tap on retro and go, you know, I did that. Like that innately just feels great to know that I influence why that person wanted to get that product. That has nothing to do with how much I got paid. Sort of staying in this in the same realm of, of technology and the Silicon Valley thing. I, I have this mentality that as designers, we we're sort of like shipbuilders. We have this talent. We build ships for all these other people a lot of times. And and if you think about it, we can also take our time and talents and build our own ships. So if you think about digital products or, or coming up with your own ideas and making it as you have the talents, I'm curious what what role do you guys see as maybe sports-specific product startups, maybe teams creating their own products or digital products or things like that. We have like a, an accelerator, startup accelerator with the Dodgers now. <laughs> I know. I know that. <laughs> um, again, relevant question. The best way I'll start this that will resonate with every one of you is when you're looking at I'll put it this way. What, what he said, the way I interpret it is, you have the unique ability to extend your own brand, right? You're in that franchise. You can extend that brand through different executions, whether it's merchandise or a new marketing program or a new extension program. You are extending that brand. It's incumbent upon you to be within the organization and that intimate within the organization to fully exploit that. And fully exploiting it means that you should never wait for an initiative to come down the pipe. The reason you're in the house is because you know how to navigate the house. You should be able to go to every room and go, where do we think marketing is going to go with this in, in, in two seasons? Or you know, where's the lead going? Where's the, new, where's the next commissioner coming in from? And what does he or she think? You know, where, where is digital going to affect fan base? You don't have to be triggered to start creative. You, you never turn it off. You just, you're constantly being creative, and you want to leverage the fact that you're so intimate with your own franchise, your own brain, your own DNA, that if you're not leveraging that, 
That is, I hate to say it, when the guy upstairs or the woman upstairs goes, maybe I need to send this out of house. And then what do you guys do? Fuck, we could have done it. Well, what were you waiting for? Permission? It's right there. You don't need to be prompted. It's yours to do, right? How we do it at 13 when we do this is we will go to a new brand that we've not engaged with before and we will sabotage their company. So we will come up with a fake competitor, make it look so slick, they're gonna shit their pants and they're gonna go, hey, fuck, they're, they're gonna take market share for us. And we're gonna go, psych, it doesn't exist, we just made it up. Now do we have your attention? Great, here's where your brand can go because this is where they would have gone. It gets their attention, trust me. <laughs> well, I think you know it's instructive to kind of look back like so many other things in life. When you think about it, uh, leagues have been doing this kind of thing for quite some time. Think about what the NFL did uh, back in the 1960s. Pete Rozelle said we're gonna you know, divvy up money regardless so that a, a small municipality like Green Bay can exist with New York, okay? Think about what Major League Baseball did in the late 90s uh, when the internet starts up, it, uh, Al Gore had recently invented it, I believe, <laughs> and uh, every club ponied up $1 million, and that $1 million became baseball advanced media. BAM now is worth how many billions of, you know, God knows, billions of, to the point that they want to keep that. So, you know, there is this history of seeing around the corner and funding the next thing, but, you know, you've got to be enlightened, you've got to uh, spend money like anything else in the world, and who knows what that next thing is, but, uh, you know, it's happened before. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're getting close to, to time, actually. I do want to ask one more question, and each of you kind of go through and explain. What's, what's one of the biggest challenges that you had in your career, and how did, through persistence, how did you get, get over it? Uh, I got to think about this before I answer it. Well, I know that when, uh, you know, Torch started 10 years ago, I know that uh, we didn't have the portfolio. And I mean, clearly, I mean, you Todd Radon has been around. How long have you been around? Sometime in the last century. Yeah, sometime <laughs> in the last century. A lot of our, our main competition, if you will, have years on us. Uh, two, three times as, 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 have been in the business two, three times longer than we had as far as sports designers. So we, there were times when we would send out for RFPs, and again, this is a collegiate level, you know, uh, to do team brands. Uh, we would inevitably lose, depending on your, your take. I mean, it might be obviously because we didn't have the portfolio, but again, they had the uh, the expertise and they had the, the client list for as long as they did. So that was a real uh, challenge for us. So, you know, we had to overcome that a number of times, and all we, we just kept doing uh, what we could build that portfolio, take whatever little project we could, if it, no matter what it was, I mean, if maybe it wasn't a team brand, we would take the smallest little identity project that we could and we would just make it the best that it could be. Um, you know, and as we worked through it, we started to get noticed and people started to notice that we weren't doing the same thing that our competitors were doing. And so we started to find, we took the training wheels off. You know, I used that analogy a while ago. Uh, Torch, you know, like we started right on our own and things started to work. So that was a huge, huge challenge for us. Well, you know, I was actually just talking about this before, and I said that, you know, there was a long, long time ago that I fell off the, the traditional career track because I came to a point many years ago that either I was going to direct the art, and I didn't want to direct the art, I wanted to do the art, and I still feel that way. So, you know, I've been a, a uh, you know, work by myself, for myself, 
I've never jobbed out a dime of creative for 25 years. There's your answer. And uh, you know, that, that can be a challenge at times because you, know, you are an expert and a craftsman on the one hand, and I really pride myself on you know, having this just incredible warehouse of knowledge uh, that I've accrued over all this time, aside from the skills and the chops and the connections and all this kind of stuff. But, um, you know, there are ebbs and flows in terms of the economy, and, and that business model is, you know, one that sometimes, you know, cash flow is scarce, or things dry up, or, you know, you can get in over your head with stuff. And, um, you know, I've had several of those over the years, and, you know, I've kind of stuck it out, and then just real quick, you know, one of, the, one of the things years and years ago, I'm very much about the pageantry of sports, there's you know, flow to my work and, you know, some movement and solid lines and just the look of it is a certain way. And I kind of fought that at a certain point because I didn't want to be the guy who, you know, was doing ribbons. Uh, you know, and this is, this is at a time where people are doing very involved animals. I never wanted to do that necessarily or, you know, really super slick work. And I was like, I really had to question myself and say, is this the course that I should stay with and be known for this or should I kind of diversify? I stuck with it, and I'm very happy that I did, and it's been a you know a fun, rewarding time. For me, the, uh, the the insight I'll share with you guys: the single most consistent and pervasive thing that has been my up at night in my career and continues to be is the insecurity. It, can I can I hold a candle to everyone else? Can I do it? And. I decided actually a long time ago, I haven't stopped thinking about it to respect it. You need to acknowledge it and be aware of it to respect it. I just consciously made a decision a long time ago to stop worrying about something that I can't control, right? Because that meant that in my cut in the mustard, I'm relying on someone else's affirmation of me to say that you're good enough. So what I did instead, instead of worrying about it and dwelling on it, I just strove to earn the the, the respect and the association with peers in my industry, right? And what I, what, what I specifically mean by that, by earning uh, hard through hard work and through diligence is I wanted, I strive for my creative and my thinking and my execution to be understood versus liked. Liked means I like it today, I don't like it tomorrow, it's, it's either good or bad, it's subjective, right? But when your creative is understood, to me, it, it takes away all that insecurity about going great. I, un, I understand how to communicate this. I understand how to present it, not pitch it. And I understand the value of what I'm bringing to the table. Right, so for me, it was how I took insecurity and put a pin in that, in that balloon and burst it and just let it go away. But I still have the balloon there to keep me grounded and humble to know that it's there. Someone can inflate that and patch at any given time, but I won't let them because what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be constantly aware of all the new different disciplines that the, the creative industry is coming up with. It's very dangerous to, to think that you're gonna be a master of all trades because as soon as you do that, you're gonna disrespect your peers. What you have to do is be aware, and as a creative a CCO or a creative director, the awareness of other disciplines within your industry is so important so that you earn the respect of why you're, you're sharing direction. You don't have to know how to write code. You don't have to turn on After Effects to design a motion graphic. You just need to communicate what it is that you need to have achieved and then bring in the right people. And I think that's how you get, that's how you, you manage the insecurity of it is you stay relevant because you understand what the industry is doing and then you collaborate with people openly and willingly. Pay it forward and then we're
Good guys. I don't know if we want to take questions from the audience at all. Uh, it's up to you guys. It's six o'clock. I think the plan is to be back around seven o'clock for the game. So if you guys want to do a couple questions and then uh, we can wrap up. I'm trying to get direct to Chris from upstairs exactly what the plan is. So can you give me I think you should ask questions. We're here for you guys. Everybody's going to be back up around seven. And then we'll leave your game tickets. We're going to be we're going to be sitting at Sweet Six for the game today. So meet up here? Oh, can we get in the building without tickets? Yeah, tickets. Well, that's what I was wondering. So is, should we hand them out? Or he said wait. To, he just sent me a text to say wait to hand well, them out. Yeah, so I'm trying to clarify that. So let's do two more yeah, questions. Yeah, let's do questions. You guys ask us questions. I hope that makes it to the podcast. Heck of a way. When you guys, I don't know, it seems like you are mostly boutique or solo, but if you're hiring someone for your company, would you still expect to see a physical uh, box portfolio or bringing in an iPad with your portfolio? Is that enough to present uh, potential hires work? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's 99% of the time I don't even look at your book. I, can, I have to assume that with this, the day and age that you can do what you're gonna do, what I'm going to do in that meet and greet is learn from you and understand how you think. Because if you can't articulate how you think design-wise, creative-wise, I don't need to look at your book. The book, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. Because the book is an affirmation as an execution of your thinking. So most often than not, I, I willingly choose to switch the paradigm around. I engage you in a conversation about how you think. What's your process? How do you go from a sketch to this? But if you start from the end and then show me, Sometimes I fear that you start with the design on the computer and sometimes that is too static. There's no, there's, there's no, it's too engineered. There's no, there's no free flowing, there's no napkin, there's no uh, unwrap that napkin and go fuck there was something in there, right? So I, I, I invite you to bring your book, but, and, and we, we collaborate with people all the time. You know, our, it's interesting, our, our business model at 13 and our Toronto agency is called Jackknife Design. We actually keep a core team of people that understand RMO, but we call them ninjas. We bring in ninjas all the time, and those ninjas are actually working professionals in other industries, because I felt that it was an opportunity for us to create a platform where people like you are, for example, people like you guys are in, in sports identities and, and, and that kind of thing, but you might want to work on branding uh, a new startup, and you might not want to leave your full-time job, and. We, we meet like this and we go, look, here's a 14-hour gig that might happen over three weeks. Are you interested? And that's when we go, we'll look at your book last, but we, we get to know you first. Because yeah. anytime we bring someone into our organization, it's a direct reflection of our better judgment. And we will never, ever compromise our judgment. Just and one last thing to touch on. Mike and I do hire from time to time when we need help. We almost would rather see like you, you were talking about the ideas. Yeah. You could come in and show me sketches. I could care less about computer stuff because if you, if I know you can come up with the ideas that we're looking for, we'll we'll get you through the computer stuff if we have to. We know everyone in this room can do the computer stuff. We need to see ideas and how you think. Anyone else? I think we all have like an entrepreneurial spirit. You know, want to go off and do everybody wants to be afraid of that jump, that going over that cliff.
to pursue that without having that worry. Well, burn your ships. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, some people, uh, I, I would say that the, the drawback, of course, is the fact uh, to being a solo person, is the fact that you don't collaborate directly to the extent that, you know, you guys do on a smaller basis and you do on a much bigger basis. And uh, that's a very rewarding thing and it's some, th something that I often miss. Some people just aren't, you know, aren't uh, good at working by themselves. Um, it's, it's an interesting question. I think it's one that really speaks to each and every individual almost in a different way. You know, it really is because uh, you've got to be prepared for, you know, uh, you've got to, it, it, it involves discipline, it amounts, I mean, there are just so many factors. I'll, I'll touch on this one a little bit too because I, I, I quit my job at 22 and started my own business and have been working independently since and I think you're never really going to be comfortable so if you're like searching for like that, that level of comfort as, a, as an entrepreneur like it's just not going to happen but I think that uncomfortableness is also what drives you right because you know that you got to keep going, you got to keep going, and you push yourself and you push yourself. But from just like a logistical perspective, like if you were going to, if you were going planning on making the jump, then I think, you know, like these guys, I know you, you put back money, you know, if you put back like six months of your expenses and then you jump out and you got six months, and if you can't drum up business in six months, you, you probably have more problems, yeah. right? Yeah. To me, uh, look, looking for a sense of stability and comfort is, utopia and it's akin to complacency right you, you start to lose drive that way when you're going ah it's there I'll get to it tomorrow right um, I mean I, I was so inspired about their story like look it's time for you to quit now we gotta go do this we had, they had 8k in the bank that's it fucking A that's yeah. killer yeah. <laughs> that's it. let me tell you our wives love that <laughs> <laughs> but, but look so you're, you're going off the cliff <laughs> we're, we're, we're friends here right what's your name Aaron Aaron you're good at what you do right of course. Yeah. So no, yes, don't, yes, don't hesitate. Are you good at what you do? Yeah. So if you wanted to exercise that entrepreneurial spirit, your risk that you're mitigating, I'm getting in your head for a second, is you're going, if I leave, if I go up that door and try something, can I get back in this door where it's comfortable and I can come back? As, as long as you're acknowledging that this is your safe zone, you're never going to go through that door. What I would say to you is stay here and then two hours a week, go out that door, put your head up and go, what can I do just to start the momentum, which is what these guys did. Right? So you have, you have every opportunity to exercise that entrepreneurial spirit, but if you look at it by posing the question to me and us from our perspective by going, how do you do it that there's a foolproof way? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. And just to touch on what I'm sorry, yeah. no, you go. <laughs> I said, I, it's fine. I, I, am, I am a fucking tenacious, rabid bulldog. When I grab onto something, I won't let go. So no is not an option for me. It sounds so deep. No is not even a word in my vocabulary. No is not, when somebody says to me, it's a challenge to go, I don't hear no as a limiter. I, know, I hear no as a challenge. And I go, well, I'm going past that challenge, right? And, and I think that's, that's innately when, I, when the light bulb went on for me about the entrepreneurial spirit. I just have been fortunate to have created a course that allows me to do it for large organizations because they go, man, he knows how to talk our boardroom language, but then he can actually step out of the boardroom and sit right with the creative team and actually do it. And that is a wonderful, fortunately for me, unique value proposition that me as a personal brand, I'm able to exploit, right? But I don't abuse it. I don't ever get comfortable with it. You know, I earn it every single time. Just 
one very quick note, nothing in depth like that. <laughs> I was talking to a group of high school students, a friend of mine is a, a art, director of an art program in high school, and looking at these kids' work, and they were doing fabulous work, and this one kid who had a fantastic portfolio at the age of 17, a million times better than anything I ever did, was asking about getting in this business, and he said, well, I've got friends going to law school, friends going to medical school, and this friend's doing that, and I tell them that I want to get into graphic design, and the first thing they ask me is, well, what's your backup plan? And he said, what was your backup plan? I said, brother, I had nothing, because I couldn't do anything else. I had to make this work. And we took that same approach when we left these jobs, these cush jobs where we made great money. And, you know, we had lunch cooked for us every day. I mean, it just, we had kind of this, you, so well, what you took it. We had this nice cush thing, and it just, it wasn't good enough for us. And, and we were, you know, for me, personally, I was miserable with the client I was working on. It had nothing to do with anything else. I just didn't want to work. I didn't have any, no passion at all for this client I was working on. So I said, I, you know, I'm leaving, and I'm never going back to that. You know, please God, I'm never going back to that kind of thing. So that was kind of our driving force, just to keep going. And I mean, it's a grind. It's tough. It's been tough. Well, and it's it's tough. I mean, it's tough with you guys too, right? Like everybody faces challenges. Um, but but I think that a lot of times we're kind of led to believe that there's this mentality that being an entrepreneur is only for certain people. And I don't necessarily believe that to be true. I, I think that it can be a learned behavior because when I was growing up, I didn't have any entrepreneurs in my family. I didn't know what starting a business was. And I didn't think it was for me. I mean, I hated my job and I quit and told them I was starting a business because I didn't want them to convince me to stay. So I sort of accidentally became, and then all of a sudden it's like you blink and six years later, it's like, wow, I somehow did this. So for, you know, I think that you can learn, learn how to be a business owner and how to exist in, in that, that uncomfortableness and be okay. I'll throw one last thing out there because I think I, I applaud you that you even asked that. So mad props to you, seriously, kudos. Yeah. Entrepreneurship is directly, draw an equal sign to unwavering accountability. If you say you're gonna do it, you gotta fucking do it. You can't go to your client and say, my computer broke down at three in the morning. I didn't have an IT guy. You gotta know how to fix it. You can't. It's accountability. It's unwavering accountability. You look at every entrepreneur, it's like the tenacity, but at the end of the day, the single most common denominator is they're accountable. And they, they willingly accept that accountability. I have something to kind of say towards that question. I have been on my own for two and a half years, and I was at a company um, that paid really well, and I got raises and did the whole thing, and then one day I just wanted to do it for myself, and I don't have the 20-year, 25-year experience yet, but you know, I my biggest fear was I just do it like I have nothing to lose, and that's a scary place to be, but it's also a very liberating place to be, and my biggest thing with the corporate job was that I just couldn't, I hated getting up and working in the morning. <laughs> At nine o'clock in the morning. And but I, what I would start doing with that company, and I learned that there, there are entrepreneurs. As much as there are entrepreneurs, there are people who innovate and solve problems and create ideas, and then they become super valuable internally in a bigger company. And then I just decided I want to see how much money I can make. So the first year out, I doubled what I made at the top of any corporate job. And so I'm like really excited, but 
I wake up every morning going, oh my god. And then I've learned that two, two and a half years in, November and December, it gets cricket quiet for me. And nobody wants photos, nobody wants web design, nobody wants logo design. So I have to deal like what these guys are saying with accounting. I've got to call all these people who have shady on time. And I don't want to be that person. I want to sit there and design and create, but the only advice I can give you is, you know, don't talk about it, be about it, but believe that you're going to be about it. Because there's, there's no, like, proof that it's going to happen until you look up six years or 20 years or two years, and I'm like, I haven't had to get another job yet, you know? And, you know, it's gotten better every year. So, I just say be daring enough to actually do it, and it all panned out. You never, you never lose your marketability, right? If you willingly lose it, that's when you need to worry. Because if you, if you jump out on your own and you try this, it's that drive. If people have it or they don't, and you're going to learn very quickly. That's right. Right? And that drive is consistent, and that drive isn't, it isn't work. It's an effort, but it's a very rewarding effort. Right? Because there's quick gains, right? Mm -hmm. There's quick instant gratification moments. And with me, the instant gratification is... I decide if I'm going to work in any given day by depending on how good the surf is. If it's good, I'm going to stay out three more hours. But when I get back to my car, there's four messages. I'll answer the right messages and I'll determine very quickly I need to do that today or not tomorrow. But I couldn't get there until I willingly decided I've got to, I've got to make this leap. But if I get out of that water and I decide that I'm going to surf a little longer, again, unwavering accountability, I'm going to be up all night. But that is so worth it. And the reason I say the marketability is you can definitely, anyone here, anybody can take that leap. Just don't lose sight of the fact that don't lose your marketability. And it's not like you can use that marketability as an abusive privilege to go, oh, if it doesn't work, I'll go back. They'll hire me back again. If you take that, that privileged approach, it's never going to work for you. What you can do is you say, I've tried this and I've learned from it and that's increased my marketability. So I may not go back to where it was comfortable before, but it may open up new doors for me somewhere else. Right? You just gotta keep pressing forward much like she's done. I think this is why Major League Baseball did not want us to have this conversation. <laughs> 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 Major level creative. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, thank you to you guys and yeah. thank you for running this. So that was the panel. I hope you all enjoyed it. Let me know your thoughts on Twitter and be sure to retweet the show and tag at MLC Connect to let founder Chris David Garcia and the panelists know how much you enjoyed it. Be on the lookout for future halftime episodes where I get some one-on-ones with some of the brightest minds in professional sports that attended the conference and I ask them some of their key takeaways from the event. My next guest is Kyle Bunch. Kyle is the managing director of social at RGA the world-renowned digital agency of Nike. Kyle leads all social digital initiatives at the company and has worked with clients such as Nike, Beats by Dre, Converse, and many more. He is also the founder of Blogs with Balls, which is a sports new media event that discusses and facilitates best practices and discusses the future of digital media and technology in sports. If you want to get inspired through the weekend, then go sign up for my new initiative for email subscribers only called Weekend Reads, which is a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content and share the things I'm reading, 
that I find interesting or that inspire me throughout the week. In addition, on that list, you'll be notified in advance of upcoming guests and get podcast show notes delivered right to your episode and and any other kind of extra content or or off-the-mind type things that I tend to have. A real quick note, of uh, those of you that were expecting a weekend reads this past weekend because of the conference i will actually be sending that out today to you subscribers and i'll just be recapping and telling a few stories from the event so please go support the show by signing up at makersofsport.com email lastly please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com itunes hit the five star and write about your experience with the show if you have gotten value from myself or the panel from today's show, or any guests on previous episodes, then please share the podcast and rate the content so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. We all have the ability and the duty to really drive the conversation about this particular and wonderful niche of design forward. So a a great way to do that is to share the show and let people know about it. I'll also accept ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.